We are just 11 days away from the 502nd year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that began on October 31st, 1517. That seminal moment began when a German parish priest of the Augustinian order named Martin Luther named 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany. And next Sunday, because it is Reformation Sunday, we are going to, as we have the last six years, celebrate that event by looking at the life of John Knox. John Knox was a key figure of that movement in Scotland, but the man who primarily got, as I said, the major Protestant Reformation going was a man named Martin Luther. Luther, as I'm sure you know, was a Catholic priest who had tried everything, and I mean everything, he knew to be a good Christian. He wanted to get right with God. Luther wanted to find peace for his tormented soul. This is what Luther said. He said, I was a good monk and kept my orders so strictly that I could claim that if ever a monk were able to reach heaven by monkish discipline, I should have found my way there. And then he goes on and he says this, all my fellows in the house who knew me would bear me out in this. For if it had continued much longer, I would with vigils, prayers, readings, and other such work have done myself to death. You know what Luther's saying there? He's saying, I was trying so hard to get right with God through good works that it almost killed me. And yet as hard as Luther worked, his conscience was still troubled by the thought that he wasn't good enough for God. And the problem was, Luther, like so many, never understood the gospel of grace. And Luther's breakthrough came when he discovered that Christianity was not about what he had to do for God, but what God had done for him in the person of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is after Luther got saved, he did the unthinkable and heard of in his day. And that is, as a parish priest from his pulpit, he began to preach the Bible. What a novel thought. He began to go verse by verse explaining to his parishioners what the Bible was saying. And one of the books that Luther preached from was the book of Galatians. In fact, it was his favorite book in the Bible. So much so that he called it his Catherine, which was the name of his lovely wife. And you can see her picture there. Later, after Luther was preaching through the book of Galatians, he took those messages and he wrote a commentary. And you know what's really interesting? This commentary is almost 500 years old and it's still available today. And you know what? I think, if I'm not mistaken, you can download it on your Kindle for free. At least I found a place where I could do that. And the great theme of Luther's commentary is simply this. The free grace of God is received by faith. Friend, that's how we get right with God. It's not through good works. It's not through our own human efforts. 
It's by the grace of God. I want you to listen to what Luther wrote at the beginning of his commentary. He wrote, I do not seek my own active righteousness. I ought to have and perform it. But I declare that even if I did have it and perform it, I cannot trust in it or stand up before the judgment of God on the basis of it. He wrote, thus I embrace only the righteousness of Christ, which we do not perform but receive, which we do not have but accept, when God the Father grants it to us through Jesus Christ. Now, you know, one of the things that plagued Luther, both before his salvation and after his salvation, was simply this. If I'm a Christian, why do I still struggle with sin? You know, that's a problem for some people even to this day. And what Paul does in the passage of Scripture that I want us to unfold this morning in what I consider to be really the high point of his letter, Paul talks about this battle that is taking place within the believer. A battle between the old nature and the new nature. A battle between the regenerate man and the man who remains spiritually dead. A battle between the flesh and the spirit. And as I said before the scripture reading, I'm convinced that if you and I can understand this concept, friend, it will make all the difference in the world. Again, I want you to listen to what Luther said in his commentary regarding the verses that we're going to look at this morning. He wrote this. He said, when I was a monk, I thought I was lost forever. Whenever I felt an evil emotion, carnal lust, wrath, hatred, or envy, I tried to quiet my conscience in many ways, but it did not work. Because lust would always come back and give me no rest. I told myself, you have permitted this and that sin, envy, impatience, and the like. Your joining this holy order has been in vain, and all your good works are good for nothing. And I always, wondered, I always wondered who came up with that phrase. You know, some people are good and others are good for nothing. Well, it was Martin Luther. But I want you to listen to what he then says, and this is really the key right here. He said, if at that time I had understood this passage... The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. I could have spared myself many a day of self-torment. I would have said to myself, Martin, you will never be without sin. For you have flesh. Despair not, but resist the flesh. Isn't that good? Friend, I think that that is the key to the Christian life. And if you want to spare yourself a ton of heartache, you need to come to the realization that you are never going to be perfect. You are never going to be free from the battle with sin. 
And one of the most helpful truths, and we talked about this, I think, two or three weeks ago, and I want to spend a moment in review on it because it is so critically important, and I want to make sure that there's no confusion in the minds of anyone this morning, is the realization that God's work of salvation from sin can be broken down into three categories. And again, this is so critical. And if you can wrap your brain around this, it will save you an absolute ton of heartache in your walk with God. Salvation consists of three tenses. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. When a man or woman puts their faith in Jesus Christ, our justification was, our sanctification is, and our glorification is to come. Or to put it another way, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. We are being saved from the power of sin, and that's sanctification. And someday, hopefully not too long in the distant future, we are going to be saved from the very presence of sin. And if you like alliteration, just think of the words penalty, power, and presence. Let's talk about each for a moment. Justification, as I've said before, is the judicial act of God whereby we are declared righteous while still in a sinning state. A sinning state. When you and I trust Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are released. We are delivered from the penalty of sin. When you and I come to God confessing our great need of him and we put our trust in Christ, we are saved. Our need for forgiveness and from the punishment we deserve is met by God with an unequivocal yes. And we are immediately forgiven of our sins. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're placed in God's family. We're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and we're placed into the kingdom of light. The Holy Spirit enters into our bodies. We become a son or daughter of the living God solely by the grace of God provided for us through the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. This eternal spiritual transaction occurs when you hear the good news and you trust Jesus Christ. You are born again. We're born from above because Christ bore the penalty for our sins that we were deserving. And you know what? We are saved from all sins. Past, present, and future. We are justified before God, our judge, because the penalty has been paid. We could never pay that penalty. We're not perfect, but Jesus Christ was. He was God and he was fully man. And when John the baptizer saw Jesus, do you remember what he said? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sin of the world. And just for the sake of completeness, once you are justified, you never need re-justifying. You can look back to that time when you 
trusted Christ and know that your justification is behind you. It is a past occurrence. That means you are eternally secure. You will never lose your salvation. Every Sunday you come to church and I present the gospel as I do, either in the message itself or at the end, you need not re-trust Christ. When you hear a gospel invitation on the radio or television or read a gospel track, you don't have to trust Christ because you've already trusted Christ. Now, by contrast, sanctification is a process that happens over time. It's a lifelong struggle. It's the process where you and I are given freedom and victory and liberty from sin's power to the point where we don't have to sin. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 20-21 says that the grace of God has been set upon us as a permanent seal. We are being made new. We are being transformed from a life of sin to a life of holiness. We're set free from the power of sin by the power of the Spirit. And God's grace restores in us what he wants us to do, what he wants us to be, rather than what we want. Before we were saved, what were we doing? Well, we were breaking every sin imaginable, engaged in it. Every opportunity that came our way, we were willing to practice sin. But now, because we're Christians... The power of sin has been broken. And we've been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Now we have the power of Christ in us. And we are to choose righteousness. Now, the challenge is this. We don't always choose to use the freedom to obey God and to do what is right. But hopefully over time, with increased victories, with an increased awareness of sin's terrible consequences, with an awareness of the joy and blessing and delights that obedience brings with the Word of God dwelling in us, hopefully there is an increasing choice on our part to holiness. And what we do is we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul talks about in Philippians 2. 12 through 13. Our sanctification is an ongoing, slow-moving growth in holiness as we are saved from the power of sin. So there's justification, where we're saved from the penalty of sin. There's sanctification, where we are saved from the power of sin. And the final aspect of salvation is glorification, where we're saved from the deliverance Saved and delivered from sin's very presence. In this life, we, we struggle and we never arrive. Don't ever think for a moment that you will someday be perfect. We all fail. We all make mistakes. But as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4-7, when we have run the race and fought the good fight... And we're called home to glory, either through the veil of death or the rapture of the church. We enter Christ's presence forever, and we will be glorified.
and sin will be no more. Isn't that wonderful? I hope as you just sometimes look around at things in our culture, you find yourself grieving. You find your, your soul tormented. In this life, we're surrounded by sinfulness. In this life not right now, sin continues to cling to our heart. In this life now, we make terrible choices, but there is coming a day when we will be delivered from it all, and we are granted freedom from the very presence of sin. Now, in Galatians 5, 16 and following, Paul is talking about this struggle in the area of sanctification. Earlier, he's talked about justification. And in chapter 5, he's talking about sanctification. And again, at least in my humble opinion, this is the high point of the letter. He's talking about the battle that's taking place between the flesh and the spirit because they are mortal enemies. They are locked in a deadly combat. And this warfare that's taking place within is a warfare for the heart, soul, and mind and body of the believer. And what Paul is saying here is Christian. Christian. I want you to live by the Spirit rather than indulge the flesh. And to follow these orders, Paul knew that the Christian needed to have something tangible that he could sort of hang his hat on so that he would know what is the difference between the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. What's the difference between the sinful nature and the regenerate nature? And Paul says, folks, it's not hard. To tell the difference. Notice what he says. He's answering the question, how can I tell if I'm being led and controlled by the Spirit or being led by the flesh? And he says in verse 19, he says the acts of the flesh are obvious. In other words, anyone with a modicum of discernment is going to know this to be true. He says that the acts of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. In other words, what you find here is simply a represented representation of the evil that is out there. Now what's interesting about these, what is it, 15 things that are listed is that there are a number of lists of vices that are found in the New Testament. Lists that are very similar to this. You see them in Romans 1, 2 Timothy 3, in the book of Colossians. And so Paul's readers would have been very familiar with this sort of list. No two list is exactly alike. And as you look at these 15 vices that Paul gives us, they can be broken down into four different categories. First of all, there are sexual sins or sensual sins that defile the individual. 
Secondly, there's spiritual sins or religious sins that defile the individual in regards to his relationship to God. Thirdly, there are social sins that defile or corrupt the individual's relationship to other people. And he lists eight of them there. And finally, there are personal sins that defile the individual's relationship to objects, namely food and drink. Notice the three things he says with regards to sensual sins. He uses three words that are very interesting to describe uh, this manifestation of the flesh in this area. He says, first of all, there's sexual immorality. Some of your translations might render it fornication. It's the Greek word pornea. We get our English word pornography from it. It's a broad term and refers to any kind of sexual sins, but especially to sexual intercourse between persons who are not married one to the other, a husband and a wife, and can I state the obvious, a man and a woman. Evidently, this was a a prominent problem in the first century, as well as today. In fact, this word has a very prominent place in the New Testament. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 that we're commanded to abstain from pornea. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says we are to flee from it. In 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5, as well as here, we're told in no uncertain terms that no individual who is given to unrepentant practice of this kind of sin is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Additionally, Paul says in Colossians 3 that because of this sin, the wrath of God is coming. And so can I just state the obvious? The Bible says that there are certain kinds and expressions of sexual activity that are morally wrong. They're inappropriate. They're depraved. They're wicked. They're decadent. And I'm going to go ahead and say it with zero apologies to those who might advocate otherwise. Any sexual intercourse under any and all circumstances outside of marriage between a man and a woman is out of bounds. It's wrong. Let's stop kowtowing to the pressures of our culture. Second sin is impurity. And given the immediate context, it's obvious that it means sexual uncleanness. Interesting word, by the way. We're far, away, far enough away from lunch that this won't bother anybody, but this word was used for the pus that came out of an unclean wound. Uh, Modern-day pornography, I think, would fit into this category. Because pornography defiles the soul, it stains the soul, it imprints the mind with images that corrupt, pervert, and twist one's sexuality. It's something that is addictive and destructive. You say, Doug, come on, come on, it's no big deal. What harm is there in seeing a little bit of skin? Doug, you've been reading the Puritans too long. I knew there was something wrong with you. Doug, this is 2019. You need deliverance from your Victorian, outmoded, unenlightened views of human sexuality. 
Really? Friend, if you want to take issue with me, then take issue with Paul. Or better still, take issue with what God says. It's wrong. Third word is interesting. It's debauchery. Some of your translations render it sensuality. Again, a fascinating word. It means a lack of respect for what is right and good. It involves not only engaging in sinful behavior, but then flaunting it in public to the point where you don't care what others think. It's the person who goes over the edge, where they have an appetite for sin that knows no shame. They're willing to march down the street celebrating their depravity and demand that others not just tolerate it, but accept it and celebrate it and rejoice and applaud them because they've, they've arrived. You know, something struck me as I was preparing this message and comparing the various lists of sins that are given. In Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Colossians 3 and even 2 Timothy 3, as well as the list of vices that Jesus gives in Mark 7, 21 through 22. And that is this. In each and every list, sensual sins are always first. Isn't that interesting? When vices are listed... Sensual sins are right at the top. And I ask myself, why? You know what's interesting about of the dozen commentaries that I looked at, not one single commentary pointed that out. And I thought to myself, why, why is that first? That was a question that I asked myself. Well, some could say, well, it was because it was so prevalent in Paul's day. Not only was it condoned, but it was considered essential. I mean, come on, that's what people do. And I suppose that's true. But I want to suggest a very practical reason why God places this first. The sensual sins. In every list you will find in the New Testament regarding vices and sins and wicked behavior, and that is because this sin is the most hurtful and most costly. I really believe that. Having seen the destructive influence of immorality in the lives of people that I've ministered to through the years, please understand that this behavior affects more people than just you. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It displays a graphic self-centeredness. It dishonors those who have been made in the image of God. It violates God's plan for a pure marriage. And it is totally opposite the fruit of the Spirit. Friends, sexual, sensual sins break the heart of God and people. As I was going out to hunt with my son yesterday... He said, what are you preaching on Sunday? 
So I told him, gave him part of the sermon. This was one of the points. And I told him, I said, Dustin, have you ever thought that if any of you kids ever did that, cheated on your wives, I said, that would change the dynamics of our family forever. It really would. I've often said that one of the reasons I would never be unfaithful to Connie, not only because I love her, not only because I know the destructive influence it would have on so many people, everybody I've ever ministered to, but I also realized that my son Douglas would beat the stuffing out of me, David would sick his police dog on me, and I could handle Dustin, but he has enough money that he could hire a hitman. And I would be toast. Look at the second set of sins. We're going to go through these quickly because they're really self-explanatory. He says the second sin which deals with religious sins, first of all, there's idolatry. This means the worship of other gods. In the quest to find our identity and security, we, we begin to worship something or someone, an event, a hobby, an act, an experience, an entertainment. And we put that in place of God. Second word is witchcraft, and this is interesting, and I, I really need to comment on it. This would include any form of the occult, such as black magic and Satan worship and dealing with the supernatural, being involved in Ouija boards or astrology. But here's what's interesting. This particular word is the Greek word pharmakia. Pharmakia. We get our English word pharmacy from it. In the ancient world, witches often prepared and administered lethal poisons as well as mind-altering drugs. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And he's saying that people who engage in this kind of behavior are following a fleshly, sinful lifestyle. And you know, sometimes Christians do things and they really don't think about the implications of it. I think when a Christian refuses to walk under a ladder, refuses to raise an umbrella in the house, they worry about Friday the 13th or even the number 13. They worry about a black cat that walks in front of them. They're engaging in fleshly, religious behavior that is inappropriate for the Christian. Third division... And this list eight sins. And these focus on relationship, and some of these admittedly overlap. But the first in this division of social sins is hatred. Interesting word. It's actually plural in the original. It's hatreds. This would include political, racial, or religious hostility, whether public or private. Second word is discord or strife, and it means to have a contentious, quarrelsome spirit. Ever met somebody like that? Yes, I'm married to him. No, 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 just, just kidding. A little lightheartedness, okay. Third is jealousy. You know, sometimes jealousy has a positive meaning, but here it's clearly negative. And a jealous person is someone who, who wants what? Others possess. 
And it often leads to bitterness and violence. Those who are jealous demonstrate a lack of gratitude to God for his providence and a lack of love for others. What they're saying is, you know, I've been shortchanged by God. Fourth is fits of rage. It refers to eruptions and an uncontrolled temper. Paul says that's a work of the flesh. And by the way, let's, let's stop making excuses for people who sin like this. Let's stop saying, well, that's just part of George's personality. It's part of his culture. I mean, he is Hungarian after all. I can pick on Hungarians because I'm Hungarian. You know, through the years, I have played golf with people who have this as their pattern of behavior. I mean, they hit a poor shot, and who of us hasn't? And they absolutely lose it. The fifth word is is really interesting. It's selfish ambition. You're going to love this meaning. It's derived from the political arena in Greece to denote office-seeking. An office-seeking individual. It speaks about the person who canvasses for political or public office, not with the motive of serving others, but they do it for what they can get out of it. No comment. Sila. Notice the sixth, dissensions. These are the people who love to stir the pot. They're always causing trouble and divisions rather than trying to bring people together. The only other place this word appears in the New Testament is Romans 16, 17, where Paul told the Romans to stay away from people who cause dissension and division in the church. Seventh word under this category of social sins is factions. It's closely related to the previous term. And it means the person who's always looking for a fight And finally, there's envy, which is very similar to jealousy, but it goes much further. This is much more destructive and hurtful. This is the person who can't stand to see others succeed. It's the person who rejoices over the misfortunes of others. They're miserable if someone else succeeds. And it's a real problem today. Many people seeking public office are are trying to divide us through class envy. Listen, a true friend rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. And I've said it before and it bears repeating, you can always tell who your friends are when they rejoice over your success. When they get to take the trip. When they get that bonus. When they get that promotion. And you say from the bottom of your heart with full and complete sincerity, I am so happy for you. I'm so glad you had, I almost was going to say good fortune, but there's no such thing as luck. I'm so glad that God blessed you. How's that? Notice the fourth division, and that's personal sins. This has to do with sins of indulgence. And he talks about drunkenness and orgies. And the thought here is drinking to excess and eating 
to excess. That word orgies there is not talking so much about the sexual component, but rather, well, frankly, it's being a glutton. The Bible does not prohibit alcohol any more than it prohibits food. But it does speak strongly and forcefully to their excess. And drunkenness and gluttony are an evidence of the flesh. That word drunkenness refers to a person who, well, gets wasted. One of the ancients said that drunkenness turns a man into a beast. And that's true. And what's interesting is that Paul says at the end of these lists, this 15 different vices, he says, and the like. In other words, he says, folks, there's a whole lot more that I could talk about. But that's enough for now. Paul here's shown the ugliness of the flesh. And that's why he ends with a warning. A very sober one. He says in verse 21, right in the middle, he says, I warn you, as I did before. In other words, it was clear. I, I taught you this when, when I was there. That those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's not sugarcoat this or water it down. Paul says, if you are living under the rule of the flesh, then you stand in fear because you will not enter the coming kingdom. I take that phrase, the kingdom of God, to be God's final kingdom. It's the place where there is the eternal rule and reign of God, namely heaven. Now please understand, Paul's not talking about the Christian who from time to time commits one of these sins against his better judgment, all the while knowing that he's grieving the Holy Spirit and wishing that he could stop. And when he finally comes to his senses, he repents and he changes his attitude. That word, those who live like this, is a Greek verb that indicates habitual action, not an occasional lapse. He's talking about people whose lives are dominated by sin. People who are committed heart, soul, and mind to immorality, idolatry, sorcery, and envy. That's not the kind of life that leads to heaven. Quite the opposite. Paul says in Galatians 6.15 that those who come to faith in Christ by grace alone are a new creature. A new creation. They're new people. And while we still wrestle with sin... In the process of sanctification, sin will not dominate them because we have the Spirit of God residing within. There's a new power to live by. From what I'm saying this morning in regards to this point is that good works cannot get someone into heaven, but persistent, habitual, evil deeds can certainly keep someone out because it's an evidence that they've never been born again. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, anyone who's guilty of these vices, and, and we've all had our moments, we've all lost it on occasion. Paul's not saying if you blew up at someone that you're going to hell. 
Even spirit-filled Christians have a sinful nature, and from time to time, they commit these very sins. Paul is talking about the person who is dominated by sin. And they are committed heart, soul, and mind to immorality, idolatry, sorcery, and envy. Friend, that's not the kind of life that leads to heaven. So what do we do? Throw up our hands in despair and say, oh, I can't make it. I can never, never be that way. No, we do what he said previously. We live by the Spirit. I want to close by having you turn to your right in your Bible about a dozen pages or so to the book of Colossians, all right? We'll close with this. I want you to look at Colossians 3. Remember I said that there's various lists of vices in the New Testament? This is one of those lists. Colossians 3, he says, Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. In other words, since you've become a Christian, set your heart, your affections on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died to your old way of life, and your life is now hidden with Christ. Now look at verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Remember how I said whenever there's a list, always the sensual is top of the list? First one he lists is sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greeds, which is idolatry. And the list continues. I want to suggest that what Paul is saying there can be summarized beautifully by what the great Puritan theologian John Owens wrote when he said, Be killing sin or it will kill you. That's good advice. And yet tragically, many Christians opt for the latter. You know what Paul says our plan of attack is in regards to these sins we kill them we put them to death we execute them we don't let them live another second and we take whatever steps are necessary to eliminate them from our life We tolerate no compromise. When it comes to sin, we take no prisoners. No matter how small or seemingly insignificant it may appear, we deal ruthlessly and radically with it. You know why? Because when it comes to sin in the life of the Christian, you are either reckless or you are ruthless. There's no middle ground. There's no ceasefires in our war with sin. There's no demilitarized zone to which you can flee. Can I remind you that your old sinful nature never takes a sabbatical? It never says, you know, I've been working so hard, it's time that I take a month or two off. No. Doesn't work that way. 
You know what that means? We can never let our guard down for one second. And if we do, we recklessly expose our soul to almost certain defeat. And you know what? The choice is yours this morning. You are either going to kill sin or it's going to kill you. And you need to deal with it ruthlessly, recklessly. And you need to eliminate it. If there are issues in your life, you need to say, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop going there. I'm going to stop watching this. I'm going to stop reading that. Whatever it is. Because Paul says the way you deal with it in Galatians is you walk in the power of the Spirit. But in Colossians, he says on a practical level, you kill it. You assassinate it. Let's pray. Father, once again, we're thankful for this passage of Scripture. It speaks with great relevancy to our time. And we pray that by your Spirit, you would seal it to our hearts and lives this morning. May each one of us leave here committed to living a life of not recklessness, but ruthlessness in dealing with sin. May, Father, we realize that it is to be killed. It is to be eliminated from our life. We pray, Father, that you would just help us to leave here confident that because the Spirit of God resides within, we can indeed have victory over sin. And while we'll never arrive till glorification, we pray, Father, that you would just strengthen us to live lives of obedience to you and lives of holiness and righteousness. And we pray as God's people towards that end, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.